the peak is not the end. Getting to the peak just means that we've gotten past the worst of it. We're in uncharted territory because none of us have ever lived through a pandemic. And this is the problem. When do you tell people it's safe to get back in the water? And when are you sure that the shark is gone? Well, I think it's too early to have conclusive decisions, but it's not too early to learn from other states and other countries. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Vitalist Spark podcast. I'm your host, John Ford, and we're back this week with our coronavirus roundtable. Will Humble from the American Public Health Association, Marcus Johnson from Vitalist Health Foundation, and emergency room physician, Dr. Nick Vasquez. This episode is expansive, touching on testing, hospital capacity, PPE, contact tracing, the economy, governance, and recent innovations. And that's all before we talk about the virus's disproportionate impact by race and the social determinants of health. As with previous roundtable discussions on this podcast, our focus is on continuing to build a data-based, shared understanding of the key things we need to focus on in order to protect the health and well-being of all Arizonans. This episode was recorded at 1 p.m. on April 13, 2020, and just the hours spent editing new data and information has come to light. While we can't be perfectly of the moment, rest assured that each roundtable episode is designed to catch you up on what has happened over the past two weeks that you may have missed and to provide new insights. As Nick said in the opening, we are in uncharted territory. If there's one thing we know for sure about COVID-19's impact, it's that this changes just about everything. All right, let's get to it. It's time to talk about what we can do together to address COVID-19 and its impact on Arizona's health and well-being. We have our roundtable for coronavirus, COVID-19, the novel coronavirus, whatever you want to call it. But whatever you call it, we still have the same great three guests, starting with Will Humble. Will, how are you doing today? Howdy, just fine. Thanks. Glad to have you back. Marcus Johnson, how are you? Doing well. Thanks for having me back. Thank you for being here. And Dr. Nick Vasquez, how are you, sir? We are doing well. Thank you very much for asking. Thank you for being here, especially as busy as you are. We really appreciate it. Will, it's been two weeks since we last gathered as a group. Tell us where we are. Last time you said it felt like a little bit of gloom and doom when we got done. How are you feeling today? What's the day to have to say for us in Arizona? I feel a lot better than I felt two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, it was pretty well gloom and doom. But we also hadn't had the stay-at-home order, I think, was brand new or it was coming out later that same day. There were some social distancing things that were in place then. But now, after two weeks, we can look back at both the number of cases and the hospitalization data And I think it's pretty clear that the interventions are working to slow the spread of this virus. And importantly, especially on the hospitalization side, things are looking pretty good. Something else that's new in the last two weeks is that the models that were underway two weeks ago, the one from the University of Washington, for example, was showing Arizona was going to exceed its ICU and hospital bed capacity by a wide margin. That was the best modeling was suggesting that's going to happen two weeks ago. As of, I think, last week, that IHME model was revised pretty dramatically with new data from other states. And when you load in the Arizona-specific data to that IHME model and look at the output, it looks really clear that we're already at a place where at peak infections and in peak hospitalization, we're going to be okay as a system with ICU beds and hospital beds. So that's good news too. 
Part of that is that the model is more sophisticated now than it was two weeks ago. But part of it is that we can now demonstrate that Arizonans are doing the right thing and that the social distancing is working to slow down new cases and new hospitalizations. And just to be clear, a couple of pieces of data that have come through just this past weekend. We've got a leveling off in the number of daily deaths and even a slight decline over the last couple of days. We are having a leveling off and a slight decline in terms of new confirmed cases. Are these correct? Yeah. And what I look at mostly is the hospitalizations more than the cases. Okay. Because the cases in part can be tied to how available testing is, whereas hospitalizations is still that's part of the equation because there's a turnaround time that has a lag effect in the hospitalizations. I, I watch the hospitalizations more closely than I do the cases. Nick, how many times can we say hospital before you jump in? What's going on in your world in the emergency room where you work? Well, it's a sort of a two indicator problem. The first is most people are doing exactly what the governor asked them to do, which was to stay home. So we've had a flattening of the curve. What has also happened is that most everybody is staying home. It's kind of across the country, but we've seen a 40 to 50 percent decrease in overall ER volume. I don't know if that's because people are less or more stressed by staying home. I'm not sure. There's some studies that show that overall admissions for strokes are down. It may be that just folks are widely trying to avoid the ER. Maybe telehealth has given them an option. It's really hard to say. So on one part, our general overall ED volume is down. The second part is that our coronavirus volume is up. Of the patients that were in the ICU for the hospital I work at, some 70 to 80 percent of them were COVID-related. That's uh, kind of a a funny two-sided trend, overall volume down, but coronavirus volume up. The other thing that I've noticed is just how many people have these lung findings that are consistent with coronavirus but have no symptoms whatsoever. It surprised us more than a few times to see on an x-ray, a radiologist read likely coronavirus uh, pneumonia on an x-ray, and the person's there for something completely different. So is that indicative of asymptomatic individuals? Is that, is that how you read that? You know, if I were to say from a 30,000-foot viewpoint, what we're all dealing with is in, in overall evidence, the evidence that we have right now is anecdotal and expert you know, level evidence, which is the worst evidence that you can have in healthcare. It's where bias lives. It's where your presumptions live. But we're all on expert guidance. So when we see something on a chest x-ray, is it that a radiologist is really afraid or is that that's truly that got coronavirus? I have no way of knowing. We treat them as if they have it. We assume that they have it. But it's really hard to get some good evidence. Within a 15-minute time span, if there was a test, I'd do it on all of these people. Our whole conversation about testing is just not there. We just don't have the capacity to test people unless they're going to be admitted, and it's okay for us to wait two or three days, and we're willing to repeat the test two or three times to see if we got it right. It's really frustrating. Speaking of testing, two weeks ago, we just started to touch on serologic testing, but we didn't really get into it very deeply. It's clear that we are still dealing with a very new virus. We don't know exactly how it's presenting all the time, potentially, based on what Nick just said. What role does serologic testing play in getting us through this and out of this? Will? I think testing generally is a really important, maybe the most important component, something that needs to be in place in order for our elected officials to begin dialing back some of these interventions. And it ties to 
being able to quickly identify cases, something Nick was talking about, something fast with decent results and a good turnaround time so that you've got the ability to identify infected folks so you can get them into isolation and then having contact tracing pieces in place so that you can identify who those folks were you know, in contact with and you can implement some quarantine measures. That's an effective mitigation strategy. It's not going to stop the spread of the virus. But post-peak, that's what you need in order to be confident that you're able to responsibly dial back these interventions that are having such a profound impact on working families, especially those in the service sector. And that has its own, and I think we talked about this two weeks ago, its own cascade of public health consequences. And so that's the task of the elected officials is to look at what we have in place in terms of testing and interventions past isolation of quarantine, and then weigh that up against the consequences that these interventions are causing, and then make some decisions about when we dial back. I would like to get back to the hospital thing for a second. Sure. We talked about how the modeling now, when you look at the Arizona-specific data, and the more refined models that are taking data and making adjustments from other states, it's becoming more and more clear that we're already at a place where we're going to be okay with hospital capacity and ICU beds. And we will probably not need that executive order from the governor that orders hospitals to increase their capacity by 50%. 25% of that increase was due last week on the 10th. 25% is due on the 24th or 26th, something like that this month. Combined with the restriction on elective procedures, which is having its own public health consequences. And so my question is, with this new data, with the new models, with the predictions being better than they were three or four weeks ago when the governor made the executive order, isn't the first thing that the elected officials should be doing is to look at that executive order and start dialing back, especially the elective procedures piece, because it's having not just the public health consequences of restricting those elective procedures, it's having a bad impact, a really bad impact, especially in rural hospitals who no longer have the revenue from those elective procedures and are now having to implement a lot of measures that cost a lot to build their capacity up. So I just wanted to open that up for discussion. It seems to me that's something that should be one of the first things that elected officials look at as adjustments from where we are now to where we were three or four weeks ago. I think you need to be really confident in acknowledging whether or not we are at a stage where we can start doing that. I haven't I haven't put in those numbers well to that model, so I haven't seen the data yet. If we are at a place where we're confident that we have enough ICU beds, that we have the capacity to deal with the surge that is here and coming, then yes, we want to do everything that we can in order to mitigate the impact that this is currently having on particularly our small rural hospitals. We've already heard from at least one hospital in rural Arizona that's looking at potentially closing its doors because they only have a handful of beds and elective procedures have been canceled and they just don't have the number of patients to be able to essentially keep the lights on. I think that if you do get to that point, you have to do another thing at the same time. You have to be confident that you're able to test 
the community around that hospital. If you're opening the doors on any sort of business and starting to use the dimmer switch to turn the lights back on very, very slowly, you need to make sure that you have the testing capacity to understand where the virus is and where it is not. And if it is starting to take a hold again, you got to be able to flip that switch back off. The data that I've seen, I'm not at this point confident that we actually have enough testing available to be able to slowly start turning things back on. I'll take the next step on that because you mentioned the budgets and that's, I think, a critical point is that every operating room is the economic engine of a hospital. It's just where the money's made, you know, as far as keeping the hospital open, mostly because hospitals, especially rural hospitals, have to make ends meet both on Medicaid and Medicare payer mix. It's not a dirty secret, but the secret of how you make your budgets work in healthcare is you have better commercial payer. And if you don't have that, the rural hospitals don't have that. It's mostly Medicare and Medicaid. You struggle to make ends meet because it's costly to have physicians. It's costly to have nurses. It's costly to have CT scanners to update and to meet the regulatory requirements. It's just an expensive business healthcare. You shutting down the operating room and stopping the elective cases is economic death for most hospitals and something will need to be done, either reopening them or a supplement needs to be given or some sort of government support needs to be given to these hospitals that are close to closing. Most of the places that are gonna close are gonna be in economically poor areas, rural areas and uh, tribal areas. Those are the places that will live the closest to going under just because they don't have a lot of excess. That's one problem is the budget. But the other problem is the model. The models have been all over the place. And I have a hard time really trusting the models that they're going to get it right to say, okay, now it's time to turn restrictions back on or take them back off. I'm not an epidemiologist and I'm not an expert in models, but just a quick little calculation means if you started 100 cases, 10 doublings in COVID-19 gets you to over 100,000 cases. At the beginning of the outbreak, the doubling period was every three days. So if you put people in this lockdown, you extend out that doubling time, six, nine, I don't know how many days, but that difference is either you get to from 100 to 100,000 cases in a month with every three days a doubling period, or you get to that 100,000 cases over maybe 90 days or 120 days. Once you lift up the restrictions, you're going to say people are free to go about. You're going to start that doubling period again until we get to the end point, which is either we get a vaccine or we get herd immunity. So I just don't know what the overall plan is other than we'll find out when we get there. I mean, if you give the Ollie oxen free and a green light and then you say, oops, sorry, it's coming back again. Everybody back home. Are people going to listen? I don't know these answers. But we're in uncharted territory because none of us have ever lived through a pandemic. And this is the problem. When do you tell people it's safe to get back in the water? And when are you sure that the shark is gone? So we haven't been through it in this country. We don't know what it's going to look like exactly in this country. But we do have within this country, we have variation on how different states have done the work. We do have variation worldwide. Will, can you talk to a little bit about that? For example, Sweden or Kentucky versus Tennessee or Florida versus New York or et cetera. Yeah, I did a blog post about this. I just think it's interesting that we have a worldwide series of natural experiments happening in real time right now. And the last time we had something like this, it was 1917, 1918, when epidemiology was primitive. We're in a position where we're going to be able to learn a lot from this pandemic in terms of what worked, 
effectively? What was the ROI, return on investment for different approaches? What was the long-term impact on GDP decline on public health? And the results from these different countries and different states and their approach. I wrote about Sweden's approach. They've got elementary schools and middle schools in play. They're still happening. High schools are out. Colleges are out. Businesses are still functioning. Bars and restaurants are open. They're taking a unique approach up there in Scandinavia. And their controls are like Norway, who's behaving a lot more like the U.S. in terms of their intervention. Switzerland is another country that we'll be able to compare them to. Iceland has been doing some interesting different kinds of interventions. South Korea, we talked about two weeks ago. So there's all these natural experiments happening. And I'm just interested at 18 months from now, looking back at the literature and learning These political decisions that are made by elected officials, hopefully informed by people like ourselves in public health, are going to have some different results that will inform the next pandemic, hopefully not soon. Is it too early to even look at any of these actions and learn from them? The differences between, say, Sweden and Norway or Kentucky and Tennessee, et cetera? Well, I think it's too early to have conclusive decisions, but it's not too early to learn from other states and other countries. One of the things we should be doing if I was an elected official, which I'm not, but if I was and I was responsible for making these kinds of dial back decisions, I'd be looking at Western Europe and look to see what kinds of decisions are being made over there and the impact that those decisions have made both on their economy, their GDP, and the COVID-19 spread and see what it is we can learn from them. And then those other states in the U.S. that came before us by a few weeks, let's say New York, look at what those jurisdictions do and use that information to help you make the decision here in Arizona. So I think we could learn from stuff, but the real definitive work will be a couple years out where we look at the big picture about what worked, what didn't, what was the ROI, what was the effect of GDP on these things and the consequences for the social determinant. Now there was a time, a long time ago, like eight weeks ago, when we all thought that Silicon Valley could do anything to save the world. And in fact, late last week, Google and Apple announced a partnership to put apps on our phones that would allow us to trace people's movements and potentially identify when people come in contact with somebody who has tested positive. Marcus, what's your take on that? It's a fascinating idea to be able to leverage the technology that's in basically every single person's pocket right now to do contact tracing. The idea in a nutshell is that there would be some sort of an opt-in approach to allowing Google and Apple to reach out to you if somebody that you've come in contact with recently has been diagnosed positive. You'd basically get a ping on your phone and it would say, you've been in close contact with somebody in the past couple of days who's been diagnosed positive for COVID-19. Please do everything possible to quarantine yourself for the next 14 days. Is it possible? Yes. I think it's really contingent on two things. One, it depends on how likely the American public is to allow Google and Apple to basically track the entire population. And two, this is a little more technical, it depends on how precise they can be with how close to each other we actually get. If I walk into a grocery store and another person happened to walk into the grocery store 10 minutes after me, but they're at the far other end of the grocery store and they're actually positive for COVID-19, 
am I really exposing myself and needing to quarantine myself? Will they say yes to that? Or can they actually identify the fact that, you know, that other person came within six feet of you, Marcus, and so you definitely need to quarantine yourself. Is it a good idea? could be effective, but I think it depends on whether or not the American public is willing to opt into these sorts of things and the precision to which they can actually track the proximity of us to each other. Well, this is how much the world has changed, though. Google and Apple are actually in a partnership. Just saying. Yeah, I guess my concern is this. You know, these are all questions kind of on the what do we do after the peak, right? When do we reopen? What do we do? How do we kind of recover from this? All of the serious plans that have been put out there, other than I'm just going to declare our economy back open, require some level of invasiveness into our daily lives that I don't think yet we're comfortable with. One version of the plan is exactly this, that you have a mandatory app on your phone that kind of tells you that you've been exposed and sort of pulls you out of the economy. Some people have talked about getting antibody certificates. Oh, I, I got the infection and I've proven immunity so I can get back out again. Other plans have every two weeks the entire population is tested. And then you have massive amounts of people on public health side doing case tracking and isolation. But I feel still like we just don't have enough information to be able to figure out what the future is going to look like. The entire world has had an experience with this virus that is about five months old. So we're trying to figure out what it's going to look like after it's gone. And our data points so far have been the outbreak in Wuhan, the outbreak in Italy, the outbreak in Spain, and the outbreak in New York. And now the models look better. I'm confused as to what the future is going to look like because I really only have two trends. One, wow, this is really bad. Two, oh, maybe this isn't as bad. So the answer to this question, what is it going to be? Is it going to be an app? Is it going to be a declaration? Are we going to return to normal? Is really hard to say because I feel like we're just learning what this is all about. Back to Will's comment about Sweden, even inherent within that model, let's say that the U.S. writ large is just like Sweden is doing. If we take an approach that says, listen, we're going to start opening the economy again. If you're younger, if you're healthy, if you don't have pre-existing conditions and you're in an area of low incidence for COVID, maybe that's where we start opening the economy back up. And we keep folks, elderly people with pre-existing conditions, try to quarantine them as much as possible. That still assumes that there's going to be some level of spread in the community but that the degree of acuity, the severity of the actual illness is not going to be as extreme. And so hopefully over time, that would build up population-based herd immunity. There's still some assumptions in that once you get sick and you recover, you're good to go. You're invincible now. We don't know that yet from the evidence. There's evidence and research to suggest that your immunity might be dependent on the viral load that actually comes into you. I haven't seen research yet to say with confidence that everyone who gets infected and then develops some sort of antibody will be immune to this now. There's risk inherent in every single approach that we could take. Before we move on to a new topic, let me just throw out a wild card here. And that is to say, once we're past the peak, at least on the first wave, and we're underneath the capacity for the ICU beds and the hospital beds, and we're moving on where the curve is a little bit lower. What's wrong with just letting people make their own decisions about how much risk they're willing to take? There's going to be some self-regulation that goes on. So if you open up the bars and restaurants and you know you're underneath the peak, 
and your capacity has improved because of the executive orders, et cetera, that came earlier. Some people are going to say, you know what? I want to go to bars and restaurants and I want to go to church. And they recognize that when they do that, there's a risk that they're going to get sick because there's no vaccine yet. But what's wrong with letting people make that decision for themselves? There's one and only one good answer to that, and that is spring break and Mardi Gras. Those are two areas that people are allowed to make choices. And their individual choices had not just individual consequences, but they had public consequences, things that were very difficult for Louisiana and for Florida to deal with. And the other part is there's this really interesting study about spring break where one beach had all of their mobile devices sort of tagged by a company. And then they followed where they went throughout the country. And they went all over the eastern seaboard, and a lot of them went back to New York. The biggest problem is one and only one thing, which is, does the healthcare system get overwhelmed? In other countries where the outbreak of Ebola has been severe enough, that the healthcare system gets overwhelmed. It isn't the people who die from Ebola that's the problem. It's the hundreds of thousands of people who die from preventable causes because they can't get access to care. We're seeing a little of that right now, not that we're overwhelmed, but there's been a displacement of normal business away from the ER. And I think in the aftermath, you're going to look around and kind of see, okay, who did or who did not get access to care? Who was restrained from it? But if our healthcare system gets overwhelmed, kind of like what I think Flagstaff is dealing with right now, you have an inability to provide standard of care for a lot of stuff. And so you just go back to old school medicine, which was, well, if it's bad enough, you know, I'll see you tomorrow morning. Or people just don't get treated. And that just means it's like you're taking a step back in time to where you don't have modern medicine anymore. So in real estate back in the day, we would say the three most important things are location, location, location. And when it comes to coronavirus, the three most important things are capacity, capacity, capacity. Is that about right? I think so. It's the inability to control an outbreak once that avalanche has started, or at least that's what it seems like so far. I put a big caveat in there because I just want to say again, we just don't know enough and it's really hard to wait. Nobody likes waiting, but we'll only have these answers in time. Give us a year and we'll have a lot of information on coronavirus. Speaking of capacity, we talked about bed capacity, but we didn't talk about PPE and some of the other supplies that are needed in order for healthcare frontline workers to be protected and do their jobs. Nick, what is the status that you see both in your own hospital, but also across the network of folks that you're talking with right now? Basically not good enough. You know, it's getting better. Everybody's moving heaven and earth to try to find PPE, but This is like the toilet paper thing. Everyone's trying to buy the same thing all at the same time. So if you're in the midst of it right now in New York or Louisiana or wherever you're at, there's just not enough PPE. We're going to be reusing N95s because we have to. As time goes on, we have a better ability to respond. We're going to have more N95s created. We have a way to sterilize them. It's given time to prepare. Our preparation is a lot better. But It's really difficult to tell people and families, hey, we got PPE, just use this, and then to see individuals get sick. We've had lots of VR docs get sick. Some have not survived. Most of them have gotten better. There is a randomness to this virus that we just don't understand why some people get really sick and why some people don't. It's not good enough yet, 
but it's getting better. If there's anything, by the way, Will, that you got right in that personal choice continuum, it was the, it was the order. Bars, then restaurants, then church. <laughs> right? <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's the correct order. <laughs> it's my subconscious at work, perhaps. <laughs> well, uh, uh, my, apparently, my grocery store does deliver beer if you wanted it. There, there you go. I think we need to circle back on a couple of the things that are still very much under the category of unfolding disaster, even at this moment where we think we might be getting things a little bit better. Namely, I'll start with the Navajo Nation, which to my understanding, it has the highest per capita rate of infection in the entire country. And this is a place where there's a lack of drinking water, let alone hand washing water and lack of supportive housing and lack of food and so many things going on there. How do we come to understand Things like that, things like the disproportionate amount of infection on populations of color, the fact that our own nation's weaknesses for taking care of all of us are being exposed by this virus, and what should we be doing about that? Marcus? I mean, that's a massive question, right? It's not going to have a single solution. There's no panacea to that. Exposing so many of the cracks in, in our social safety net system in American culture writ large. You had talked about the Native American community, specifically the Navajo up in northern Arizona and in the Four Corners area. They represent something like 5% of our entire population. And they're now representing, I think, 5 or 6% of all the cases, but 15% of the deaths. It's not like they're contracting the disease far easier than everybody, pretty much on par with the population representation. But the degree to which they're able to fight off the disease are higher than we would expect to see. It's not just genetic this, this is due to a lot of the social issues that we see. John, you alluded to the fact that a lot of these communities don't even have hand-washing abilities, something that we in urban areas really take for granted. And your similar disparities emerge throughout the U.S. and other cities and other states where African-American communities and Hispanic communities are far overrepresented in the death data. Again, not just because of genetics, but due to the fact that these folks are more likely to be exposed because they're often having jobs that put them closer to the front lines because of current and historical trauma and other issues are more likely to have pre-existing conditions like hypertension and diabetes. And so therefore, when they do contract this disease, they're far more likely to succumb to the extremes of it. The question of how do we fix that? Listen, this has taken hundreds and hundreds of years to get us to this point where these disparities exist as they are. And it's going to take us a long time to kind of undo some of those disparities. Nick, when it gets really dangerous, this is primarily a respiratory infection. Anybody who lives in a neighborhood that has lesser air quality, anybody that lives in a neighborhood where asthma is prevalent, automatically is at higher risk. It's tough. There's such a randomness to this virus that it does impact a lot of different organ systems. We've seen elevated troponins. We've seen things that look like heart attacks that aren't. We've seen people with GI symptoms that are profoundly impacted. It's just a weird virus in the, the way the body responds to it. I think the disproportionate share is, is a combo of lack of access and lack of trust. There's this thing about humans, we work on the speed of trust. And if populations that have felt marginalized or unimportant or taken advantage of or dismissed, you don't trust the messages coming out. 
there's a lot of research on this on physicians. If you don't get the communication right, if you can't kind of understand the cultural cues and the patient will seem like they're listening to you, but they're not. They're not going to follow your instructions because you're just not speaking to their reality. You're not reaching them. You're not connecting with them. And I think there's just this level of distrust in our communication with minority populations that there's just a lack of trust. Part of what we've seen with this virus is how fast it grows. If there's any delay in the social distancing, then your population gets a lot larger the affected minorities seem to be doing worse. They have more hypertension. They have more smoking rates. They have less capability to go to the doctor and buy medicine. It's just up and down the board, all of the things that you would need as an individual to respond to an illness. Some of these populations just don't have that. And this is frankly not new to you. It's just amplified by this infection, correct? It's not new. It's been something that has been prevalent for decades. It's a little bit of a kind of a joke for me, but it's not a joke. I follow where the dentists go. I'm not blaming dentists, but I always look at dental offices and cosmetic dentistries because where you have a higher proportion of dentists and cosmetic dentistry, you have a richer population with more resources. And where you have less dentists per capita, where you have less dental offices, you have many, many more people with dental illness, but much less ability to do anything about it. And as a consequence, those populations end up just living sick. And I think that's one of the things that my experience as an ER doc is how much certain populations live sick, whether it be hypertension or diabetes or rheumatoid arthritis, they just live sick because they don't have an option. The exposed populations in this pandemic are people who have their insurance through their job. They lost their job. They now have lack of insurance. The group of people who are generally uninsured or underinsured, and that group now includes anybody who doesn't have five grand to pay their copay. We're just confronted by an overall systemic inability to overcome an unequal world that we live in where I may be able to go afford insulin, but the diabetic who needs it can't. That's going to put them at a higher risk. The prevalence of obesity is worse in poorer people. Those folks are more likely to be obese and more likely to be diabetic, and diabetes don't do well with COVID-19. Kind of just across the board, you know, throw a rock up. You're going to hit a reason why a minority population might be worse off in the long run. Let's switch gears. Marcus, in the category of necessity is the mother of invention, we've seen a bunch of innovations over the last six to eight weeks. Can you talk a little bit about some of those and, and where you think they're headed? One of the first that I saw, it was just an anecdotal article. Some scientists are trying to retrofit breast pumps to blow out as opposed to sucking in. If you can do that, you can theoretically create some sort of a ventilator system that might be helpful in the healthcare settings. I don't know how effective this is going to be, but it was kind of an innovation that perked my interest. Some other innovations that have occurred last week, the USDA actually said that it would be appropriate for SNAP beneficiaries, basically families who are on food stamps. They said it's going to be okay for them to shop online for their groceries. They'll allow those families to do so, which is a great thing because it's a true necessity right now. If you're going into the grocery store, you are inherently putting you and your family at risk of the virus. So it's much safer if you have the ability to, to shop online and have groceries delivered to you or to pick up curbside. That's a no-brainer that regardless of your income status, whether you're able to put food on your family's table on a weekly basis or if you need government assistance to be able to support 
your family's meals and you're on SNAP, that stretches across the board of every single population that's going to benefit. And so one would hope, one would expect that once we come out of this pandemic, that things like that will stay in place, that there's no reason that just because you're a lower income individual or your lower income family, that you shouldn't be able to do basic things like shopping for groceries online. Last thing that I'll mention too is just the expansion of telemedicine. That started to take hold in Arizona last year when the state passed a law that said that all commercial insurance companies need to cover telemedicine services if those services are also provided in person. That legislation was supposed to go into effect on January 1, but due to Governor Ducey's order, that went into effect immediately. And it not only said that they have to cover services if they're provided also in person, it also said that if you're an insurance company, you have to pay the same amount for that telemedicine service as you would pay if it were covered in person too. And so ideas like that are starting to really take hold. It would seem like it's kind of a no-brainer to continue that into the future, regardless of whether or not we have a pandemic. Nick, your perspective on telehealth? I think it's a dramatic change to the way we've been doing things. All of a sudden, just the inertia blew up. I've always kind of uh, joked a little bit that practicing medicine is a little bit like entering into a time warp. Every time I walk into the hospital, it's 1995 and I walk back out and it's 2020. I'm open for telehealth. I think we'll bring around some modernization of the healthcare system that hopefully will start to lower prices and improve access for people. So as we wrap up this third episode, I want to go around the table, if you will, and ask you this, because we're still in the middle of it. There's still tons of unknowns. I think a lot has been said today about how this particular virus is still very unknown to us. We don't know exactly how it's going to behave. We don't know exactly how things are going to play out over the long term. And nobody has that data yet. That all having been said, starting with you, Nick, what advice would you give people listening to this podcast about how they conduct their lives over the next two weeks and what they should be looking forward to in the medium and the long term? I'm always a guy who likes to highlight on the hopeful. So there's that old crowded house song, uh, Don't Dream It's Over, which is where I'm at for the next month. Some of the modeling that I've seen that's being done at ASU, I haven't seen, but I've heard, has a peak somewhere around May 18th. I don't know how we fare on the overall ICU beds, but it sure seems like the picture looks a lot better now that folks are staying home. So for the short run, the next two weeks, I think it's still the same social distancing and staying home. Will, your take on that? What do we do in the short term? What do we do in the long term? So for ordinary Arizonans, the people that are doing the work, staying home, avoiding unnecessary social contacts and so forth, same thing. Keep doing what you're doing. This is working. So that's for just average listeners. For public officials, elected officials, my advice is let's take a second look at that restriction on elective procedures and see if we can give more flexibility to the hospital systems to manage that on their own in a reasonable way. I'm not talking about cosmetic surgery. I'm talking about somebody who needs their prostate out and that's been delayed or somebody who needs a knee or hip replacement or something like that. I think we're to the place where it's safe to start bringing some of those procedures back. It'll be good in terms of revenue for the hospitals and it'll be great for people that have had these elective procedures delayed. And just because they're elective doesn't have an impact on your quality of life, it does. That's my advice for elected officials like the governor to say, look, because Arizonans have been doing such a good job, because the models are pointing in the right direction, I think we can safely back off of that elective procedure suspension. And then I would look towards my team and say, I am giving you a directive that we need to have the pieces in place for good contact tracing in May. 
And what resources do we need to spend out of that $50 million that the legislature gave us so that we've got the ability to have good contact tracing in the second half of May? Because I want to have that in place as I think about backing off this summer. Marcus, same question to you, short-term and long-term advice. I think the last thing that I just wanted to really emphasize is to acknowledge that the peak is not the end. There's a lot of conversation out there about when are we going to peak? When is this thing going to be at its apex? We kind of make it seem as if once we get there, all will be good. Getting to the peak just means that we've gotten past the worst of it. We'll still need to do all of the social isolation, physical distancing measures that we're doing right now until we can snuff this thing out enough to ensure that we have the ability to prevent it from coming back, hopefully. And that, like Will said, means that we got to have the ability to test, do the tracing, and ultimately make sure that this thing does not rear its ugly head in the fall. Thank you, Will. Thank you, Marcus. And thank you, Nick. We can't tell you how much we appreciate your time, your insights, and your perspectives on the data, the key focal points that emerge from that data, and projections regarding our way forward here in Arizona. As for what you can do, in case our three guests weren't quite clear in that last segment, we've got to keep doing what we're doing. At this point in time, we can only avoid healthcare system overload if, and only if, we do a good job of social distancing behaviors that slow the virus's spread. That's it. Stay home, stay safe. Continue to be smart about social distancing. If you detect any symptoms of coronavirus, self-quarantine and quarantine as a household to stop asymptomatic spread. These are the tools we have. Statistical models from around the US and from around the world agree on these points. We ignore them at our own and our community's peril. This remains a marathon, not a sprint. Just like in a marathon, you can feel pretty good early on and things can still go disastrously wrong before you reach the end. Stay smart, take care, and take care how our behavior affects others. Do this for all Arizonans, but especially for those who are less healthy and most threatened by COVID-19. Community health and lives depend on what we do collectively. That's it for this episode. The takeaways from this dialogue belong at the family dinner table as much as they do in your place of business, in city and town halls, and in the domains of health care and public health. So please share this independent episode far and wide. Subscribe to the Vitalist Spark podcast to get notified as soon as new episodes are released and encourage others to come along with you. In the world of podcasts, you can give us your feedback on iTunes, Google Play Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also give us your input the old-fashioned way. Your corrections, complaints, and compliments are all welcomed by emailing us at feedback at vitalisthealth.org. Finally, remember this. With great responsibility comes great power. We'll see you back on the road to well-being soon.